0: today's episode using genetic engineering to travel to new worlds hello and welcome to technology in space where we talk about the science technology history and business of space exploration and commercialization i'm chris alvarez and thank you for listening I'm speaking with Dr. Christopher E. Mason, author of The Next 500 Years, Engineering Life to Reach New Worlds, published by the MIT Press, April 20th, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So first, a bit about your background. How did you get into um, studying this subject and and writing a book on it?
1: Happy to go into it. So I've always been interested in space as a kid. I went to space camp uh, twice, actually, so Mm I've always really enjoyed looking up at the sky, thinking about, could humans go there? I then got interested in genetics when I got into middle school and high school and did my PhD and clinical postdoctoral work in genetics. And I am now a genetics professor, and so I've always been interested in genetics and space. And so I had a really unique opportunity. We studied uh, Mark and Scott Kelly when Scott was going up to space for a year. There were 10 different teams selected for this mission, and our lab was one of them. So I really uh, began... Thinking about everything we learned from that mission when there was a human body in space for a year, which is the longest ever NASA mission, and there'd really only been a few other Russians that had gotten that, that far in terms of spending that much time in space. So we really have just very limited knowledge. And I just learned that there were a lot of changes to the body in space, but also that most of them did go back to normal, but that it was hard on the body. And I think when we think about moon, the moon or Mars or even farther missions from Earth, uh, we, it will be hard on the body We have to think about everything we could bring uh, to protect the astronauts for these long missions.
0: Mm-hmm. When you mentioned uh, 10 teams um, analyzing these astronauts, are you saying that they had to divide up their time, you know, as far as who could, you know, dr- draw blood <laughs> or whatever? <laughs> You
1: know. It's like, you know, like splitting the baby. Like, you know, you could, there are only, there's only, you know, a couple of astronauts here. But we, well, fortunately, we shared. We're all good, you know, good scientists, and, and we were good at sharing. So we did split up DNA and RNA and proteins and urine and stool. Stool got shipped around the country. So, um, you know, all the biospecimens that we could collect were all partitioned and shared as best we could. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, at the end, we had to collect all the data and also analyze it together. So it was actually a lot of fun working with a lot of the twins, teams, PIs.
0: hmm so, as a geneticist, um, what, what uh, you can get as graphic as you need but but what did you you know what what sort of uh, samples and specimens do you use? H- how do you use it?
1: Yep. as a geneticist though, I mean, anything that has DNA or RNA or is related to DNA and RNA is what we looked at. so we we focused a lot uh, for this for that first study. On um, the genetic changes, and also the RNA changes or what genes become activated. Mm-hmm. So of course, as everyone's listening, I think about the DNA in their cells, which is the molecular recipe for the cells and how they function. The RNA is when they're active, is when you can actually see those genes in motion and performing their function. So we looked a lot at DNA, the RNA. We also looked at DNA and RNA, not just in cells, like in T-cells or B-cells or those immune cells in your body, but also in urine. We looked in, in the blood to see when you have fragments of DNA that are floating in the bloodstream. We can use that as a way to actually characterize what's happening inside the body. Mm-hmm. And and this is actually something that's done routinely now for cancer care is that if you can't get a piece of the tumor, you can often see if there's fragments of mutated these bits of DNA from the tumor in the blood. So you can just draw a blood sample to check on the status of a tumor. And you can do the same thing for healthy cells as you would for diseased cells. So we did that for the cells when they were in flight, which called cell-free DNA, just mm. in the blood.
0: Did you see any difference um, in the amount of genetic material in, in the astronauts that, that versus uh, someone who hasn't been to space?
1: We saw some really surprising things, actually. So, you know, among the things we saw, a lot of genes were activated. We saw basically genes for DNA repair, and immune function and T cell activation, we could see his body actually responding to the radiation. And that even persisted after flight. And then some other things we saw in terms of, we saw about the same amount of DNA, but sort of the types of DNA that we saw spiking up in the blood did change. And one in particular is called mitochondrial DNA, which most people think of mitochondria. That's actually in the powerhouse of your cells. It's what gives your cells energy. But we saw a whole bunch of them once you got into space were ejected uh, into the bloodstream. And this is something that is really surprising because you don't normally see it unless you're fighting an infection uh, or really have general bodily stress, but we could see it in space also. We observe this, this phenotype or this incidence of mitochondrial DNA in the blood.
0: Hmm. So talking about the book then, um, at what point in your research did you decide you wanted to write a book like this because it's described as part philosophy, science, um, genetics, et cetera? You know, etc.
1: Techno, yeah, techno, biotechnology in there. It's a, it's a mix. I actually, the, the sketch of the book uh, started as many things do at a bar with a pen and a napkin <laughs> and started writing ideas of, of what, what, what I hope. Actually, it's more of a treatise of hope than it is anything else. It's what I really mm. uh, hope will occur for humanity, for scientists, for astronauts that we will not just be tethered to one planet, but that we'll get to others. Not because I want to leave Earth, because I think Earth is fabulous, but it is. Just that we have a risk here. If anything goes wrong here or if we screw it up, uh, that that's it, right? So I, I really want uh, humans to, you know, exist in the long term. I'm a humanist. I think that humans are, you know, we have got some problems, but at writ large, good. Uh, some people don't want humans to live. I actually got emails when the book came out from some people who said, why do you want humans to live? They should just let us all die and we're a cancer in the universe. <laughs> uh, to, you know, To which I say, well, we have cancerous aspects. There are things that are not perfect about humanity, but all the poetry, all the music, the science, the technology, all the sort of culture that is, that is created by humans mm-hmm. I- is unique in the universe, and so is our awareness of extinction. So sitting in the bar, writing on the napkin, and thinking well, what needs to happen over the next few decades or years To make it so that we could get to other planets. And I realized then. We had just had the very beginnings of human genetics, but we didn't have a lot. We had no astronaut genetics. It didn't exist until we did the study. Mm-hmm. We had just had also no knowledge of what happens to the body really in space at a molecular level, a defined grain level. So I thought, well, we should we should do this. So I began to actually write proposals to NASA and talk to them. And then when the solicitation came out, I already had the whole grant written, so it was easy to submit. Mm-hmm. And now we're doing this not just with NASA, but also with SpaceX astronauts, Doing it, We did it with 59 other NASA astronauts last year, and so we're really expanding out to understand what happens to the body just when you're in space. That was kind of the first 10 years. I want to just better understand genetics and better understand humans in extreme environments. Mm-hmm. Now, the next nine phases over the next 490 years uh, goes through everything, you know, because that would take a while to go through everything. That's why I wrote a book about it, I guess, but is it is basically improved understanding of ways to edit the genome mm-hmm. and then to put them into places that are farther and farther from Earth so that it involves eventually – uh, modifying or reconstructing different genetic circuits that would enable us to survive, including potentially in the human genome. And at the end of the 10th phase, so the phases deal with going out a little bit farther and doing more and more engineering, not just of small genes or circuits, but entire new cell types mm-hmm. and even new features for, for human bodies or other bodies.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But then eventually we'd have enough technology to send a whole ship to another star and have people uh, make it and survive the trip is what the goal uh, of the book. And it lays out exactly how we do that.
0: Mm-hmm. How about um I'm going to have random questions here as they pop up Great. it's going to be hard for me Great. to So um might might someone uh, look at this and say hey you want to create a, a race of super people you know that are going to be different from humans you know if we go down this path um do you, do you address that in the book or
1: Very much so yeah in, in in fact one of the most important things to look at is say well this this sounds even a bit like well isn't this what eugenics was that people say we're going to make uh, good genes only but i actually think it's in the way it's described in the book and and the principle and the philosophy behind it is that the the moral argument is that you have to do it uh, just to survive right so if we there's a chance that if we don't do this we might not make the trip and so I, I posit that you know one it's our duty to get there to survive and that if if we need this in order to survive it is actually the it is the moral thing to do mm-hmm. because otherwise we wouldn't make it at all uh, but but also i discriminate between what is what eugenics did is it tried to actually Remove genes and also it it took away liberties and it took away the ability for you to do things it had forced sterilization it had obviously it put people into very specific categories uh, be, because they believed that your genes were your destiny i actually in the book described the technologies that flip it completely on its head is that the gene editing and gene modification technologies mean you are no longer subservient to the genetic lottery you were given at birth you actually can slightly tweak, modify, remove diseases if they're there, as is just published three days ago, actually, a New England Journal of Medicine, in vivo editing CRISPR therapy, where we've taken someone who had a disease and used CRISPR to get rid of it in the person. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's actually hundreds of clinical trials already doing this I talk about in the book. And So this idea that it it is still a fantasy or it's it's to be coming is fallacious. It's already here. We're already doing large-scale clinical trials to remove disease. And it's just a logical next step to say, could you then... Remove limitations that you'd have the ability to live in a lower gravity versus, versus Earth gravity environment or remove disease genes or in, enable to survive in lower oxygen. Uh, I'd frame it as the way to expand liberties rather than to remove them, which, if it's done correctly, would do so. It has to be done equitably as well. Most healthcare that's deployed that's cutting edge hmm. is certainly not been deployed equitably throughout history, but it hmm. potentially could be if we do it right.
0: What about? Um using genetic engineering for lack of a better word uh brain and emotions thinking cognitive abilities and emotions and you know because it could, you know going into space people often bring up isolation will drive people crazy do you address it, it is of that?
1: one of the, there's five key hazards that nasa's highlighted and that is one of them the isolation you know the the radiation the lack of gravity or changes in gravity the isolation the distance from earth you know all, all these things are hazards. And that isolation is a big one. You will be, if, if you've ever had, you know, a roommate that you didn't like, uh, it would be like that, but a lot worse, you know. So it, it is uh, hard, but, you know, the people that are selected for the astronaut program are extremely, uh, you know, a flexible, dynamic, uh, accommodating collaborative and, and really try to work with people and if everyone's like that in theory it's a lower risk but it is still a big risk for sure mm-hmm. and and you know if you wanted to engineer the people to be the most i don't know docile or collaborative or friendly we don't have any ways that we know of to do that quite yet for humans mm-hmm. but what's really interesting is i describe a part in the book of what was done for silver foxes this was done in a, a russian genetics experiment started in the 1930s and 40s mm-hmm. is they continually bred only those most docile foxes and then didn't let and let the other ones die who are the most aggressive ones mm-hmm. and basically over about 40 years created dogs from foxes, actually, in Russia. It's an extraordinary experiment. You can Google it or look it up Alliance in the book as well. And it shows that if you use, you know, really selective trait enrichment, you can get a really kind of a different species in just a matter of decades, at least for silver foxes, Uh, even small things like their eyes would look at you the way a dog's at you they track your eye when you look at a dog and they look at you they'll track your eyes whereas foxes generally don't care they'll look at you briefly and look away they're not actually tracking you and as emotive and their tails don't wag when they see you but but dogs do and so all these traits uh could be were engineered effectively in about four decades
0: i'm speaking with dr christopher mason author of the next 500 years you can find more information about his work at masonlab.net if you like this episode so far Please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. Now, is this sort of a this sort of breeding program? Is that a subset of genetic engineering? Does it fall under? You know,
1: yeah, where... I'd say it's really the oldest form of genetic engineering. It's the one we've been doing for ten thousand years with crops. So, for example, corn. Do you think? Oh, I'm going to go grab some corn corn as we know it today did not exist really, you know, 15,000 years ago. It was a small weed that had a few kernels. And so what we've done with plants and what we've done with a lot of animals is just to continue to breed the ones that we like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'd say th- this is just a, a faster version of that.
0: Mm-hmm. So just looking, as you mentioned, the book has chapters that jump or look at maybe, I noticed mostly it was 50-year blocks and then a couple, a hundred-year <laughs> Yep, yeah.
1: um it gets a bit more vague as you get to the, the hundreds of years in the future. Of course, not surprisingly,
0: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hey, but that's fine. You know, a plan is a plan, however long mm-hmm, out mm-hmm. you look at it. Um, how did yep. you, you know, how, how do you look at the state of science and how it's done? D- did you do that to try to extrapolate where we might be?
1: Absolutely. So everything in the book is is anchored in science, and not a single thing is really remotely science fiction. Because I just take something that works today, a technology or an experiment or a tool that we use either in my lab or other labs that we know is 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 happening, is, is working, is being done in clinical trials. And think well what if this was just a little bit better or what if this was combined with other tools uh you know there are some parts that get a bit fanciful like you know think about could you get a chloroplast inside of a human cell so you could be like a green human or a chloro human i was calling it Hmm. uh that is the one that's a bit more farcical because it would be really difficult but but i again i give examples of uh, animals that we know can eat plants and then have the photosynthesis still function for a little while Hmm. so everything that is a even a idea has some anchoring of, has this been seen in nature before? Is there something that's like it? And the answer is yes to every one of those, those features.
0: Mm-hmm. So do you go much into sort of the business and, and legal aspects of, of getting this done?
1: Yes. In terms of like, well, the commercial companies doing it or, or, right. uh, actually, right. yeah. So we described a bit of what SpaceX and Blue Origin are doing. It's focused mostly on the NASA missions. The worked with NASA more than any other agency, mm-hmm. But we've done a lot more recently, just in the past you know, six months with some of the other commercial spaceflight providers, and we know that they will probably, within a matter of five years, maybe fly as many or maybe more astronauts than what NASA has done, or Roscosmos, the Russian space agency. So, I mean, because they're planning multiple trips per year for sometimes maybe eight astronauts going up. Uh, and to be an astronaut, in theory, you have to go above 100 kilometers above the Earth, which is you know, some of the blue origin flights will just be for three minutes You're up there and you come back down. So it's almost more like a, a big roller coaster, but you'll technically be an astronaut. So uh, there's a lot of those being planned and the economics of it's harder. Like I think right now there hasn't been a, a killer app, if you will, where something is shown that the space economy is really ready to explode and say, everyone should be able to go to space. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a dream of having more of a access to space and this democratization of space flight, but that's, I think still a ways off, but I, I touch on that briefly as well.
0: Does, um, Genetic engineering for space? Does it? Um, are there a lot of re- current real-world applications that would um, that would allow it to be developed sort of simultaneously? You know, use in space as well.
1: Yeah, actually, some of them are, one of my favorite things I describe at length in the book is this idea, not just of genome editing, which I think a lot of people have heard about and heard about CRISPR and and even CRISPR babies. There was babies that have been embryos that have been CRISPRed and modified and and born in China. Hmm. Uh, But I describe a lot in there ways where you can do uh, epigenetic CRISPR. So instead of adding or removing a gene, you actually just turn something on or turn it off, much like the RNA was talking about before. You just change the activity of a gene rather than to uh, alter a gene. Mm. And where this could be useful, and, and already has been useful, is in, in treating, for example, beta thalassemia or other blood disorders, where or, or some that where you if you have a, a faulty hemoglobin, what you can do is just basically, you CRISPR and turn back on your fetal hemoglobin, mm. and make it so that you turn back on a version of a gene that uh, was active when you were a fetus, which works just fine as, a, as an adult. So if you have a problem with one version of a gene, why not turn that off and turn on the one that is still good, if you will? Mm-hmm. And the other thing you can do with this kind of these kind of therapies, which being done by DARPA, uh, the Defense Advanced uh, Research Projects Administration, is basically for soldiers when they go into a battle or, or for cancer patients when they're getting radiation. Mm-hmm. If you're going into a radiological environment, for example, like space. Or, you know, a a military uh, engagement that might have high radiation or just cancer therapy. Mm. What if you could activate genes that could, you know, give additional DNA repair or protection to your cells just for a little while Mm. and then take them back down later? And so this is already being worked on by several groups with DARPA and we're working on this with for cancer cells in my lab. So uh, this is. You know, it just it gives you this idea of t- making your genes like a light switch, and just having this plasticity of function mm-hmm. as you need it as a way to get safety for cancer patients, um, soldiers, or astronauts. Basically, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. When you mention China, I, I think of um, sort of uh, lower, lower. Uh, I don't want to say lower, lower moral barriers, but it seems like Chi- a country like China is more willing to do things and experiment in ways that will advance science, but morally, people might be opposed to it, you know, especially if there's not democratic consensus. Um, Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I think I've seen, we've seen at least uh, from the evidence that this has happened is that they've done, they did embryo editing of human embryos before anybody else did. And they've often, for example, some of the CAR T therapies, these are chimeric antigen receptor T cell therapies where you engineer T cells and put them back into the patient china has far has more trials than anywhere else in the world in terms of these really novel immunotherapies for cancer and so it it does seem like they're jumping ahead at least in terms of the types and the numbers of therapies Uh, but i'd say my interactions with the clinical staff there at hospitals has been their scientists and clinicians you know just like we are in the us their primary goal is to save the life of their patient and so they um they they jump in with the same instincts and the same goals and, and it seems like sometimes they're jumping in a little bit earlier than the i'd say the global consensus uh, but it hasn't been true for for every therapeutic avenue but but in some cases for sure like the human embryos mm-hmm.
0: in that case though it seems like China will always be ahead scientifically they
1: are in some ways for sure right now and also they're building their own space station they have mm-hmm. a really rapidly expanding space program they've announced plans to get to Mars by 2035 and and so the, it, it really has become a new space race in this case it's not just two countries it's multiple countries, it's actually at this point about 10 or 11 countries with pretty established space programs, mm-hmm. plus private uh, spaceflight companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic. So it is really an extraordinary new era in spaceflight in the space race. And, and uh, you know, even NASA has really kind of abandoned low Earth orbit. Like, well, okay, that's the easy stuff. We want to focus on really deep space missions, obviously, to like the Moon or
0: Mars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it seems like on one hand there's a lot of necessary a lot of collaboration necessary to reach these achievements but on the other hand like you said darpa is part of some of this research and so you have you know military competition as well yeah um,
1: yeah and the military you know they also want to keep their soldiers safe the, the same way we at the hospital we want to keep our patients safe mm-hmm. and um and there of course there's this question of uh, will the militarization of space happen uh, hopefully not. Uh, the Coast Bear and other uh, acts that have been signed are supposed to prevent that. But, mm-hmm. it, you know, um, everything else has been somewhat uh, militarized at some point in human history. So I'm sure at some point there'll be a little bit of it, but hopefully not too much.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you see any any current uh, obstacles to what we're describing that could easily be overcome, maybe with political will, or or maybe mm-hmm. would you like to see businesses focus more on something that they're not
1: yeah. And for, for getting them like longer space flight or, or just for getting to space more or any anything.
0: of the, the genetic yeah. work um, that you're doing.
1: Yeah. I, I actually think what, what's really exciting about the time in which we live is that the technologies to, to enable some of these, these tweaks or modifications or, or temporary changes to the genome already exist that we need to find, uh, you know, slightly improved versions and do rigorous testing of them, but we don't have to create a new enzyme that doesn't exist or, have an understanding of a cell type that we've never seen before. The you know, cell by cell maps of the human bodies have been mostly completed. There's still there's always going to be ongoing discovery, but that exists the, the tools for CRISPR and genome and epigenome editing are established and being used therapeutically. It really, I think, would just be an acceleration of the research that's already happening. So, you know, more work on some of the gene editing systems or delivery systems inside human bodies to make sure that the therapy gets somewhere and lasts, right? So when you engineer a cell. You, put, you reinfuse it into a patient or you modify inside of a person, how long does that last, right? So, and, and how long can that be done? What you really want when you do some of these kind of trials is really a lifetime surveillance of what happened after the therapy, how did the patient do? Mm-hmm. It's usually done for a few years or maybe five years, but for, for the NASA astronauts, they do a lifetime surveillance study, a health study to keep track of them. And so I think if we do more of this kind of Long term surveillance, which is expensive because you need something to last for like three decades. Mm-hmm. And most funding agencies work in cycles of four or five years. Mm-hmm. And so almost by definition, the, the structural infra- the infrastructure of, of funding agencies itself, themselves are not built for this, but they could be. And I think should be. So I would say more investment in the raw science and more longitudinal uh, monitoring of astronauts as well as people getting in- these interesting new therapies.
0: With that in mind, is this long-term research in astronauts is that sort of a, a sunk a, a cost that nasa nasa will always bear or have you seen where they've had to cut back funding
1: um they i mean they have historically borne that cost but but they go through budget cycles every year and also the president's changed and suddenly they get a new set of priorities so you know the hardest thing about being nasa is that they have you know the, the sort of occasional you know winds of change that come from political forces or Uh, change in congressional priorities. But the best thing about it is that, you know, there's really nowhere else you can have that, you know, decades of research and the the people there who know what they're doing to lead these missions. So it's, um, you know, it would be great if there was a new kind of space funding act. It's like we promise we'll keep it the same for at least 30 years or something. Um, hmm. You know, it's not just a human research program. It's all the satellites, it's the other missions, the ones to Mars and, and Jupiter, uh, you know, satellites, uh, small spacecraft. They all have to go through the same budgetary kind of uh, fear almost every year.
0: Now I'm going to ask some questions that I'm trying not to make them science fiction-y. Um, but sure, uh, sure
1: but sometimes they, uh, they might be there.
0: <laughs> so one, our, I, you're probably familiar with that, uh, the concept of, of sending embryos or cells out into space and letting them grow, you know, instead of, you know, with the idea of humans just, whatever we do, they're not going to be able to make it. Um, but if we just send out, like I say, cells, you know, that right, are right. nurtured by robots.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, so, yeah, and there's even some books and movies about this. So could we just, I, I described it a little bit in the book of, as an option, right? So the the big question is, how do we get to another planet? Uh, and actually, to take a step back, the two most exciting things in the book I described the fact that our knowledge of genetics has ratcheted extraordinarily fast and, and 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 deep, and our knowledge of exoplanets is also at the same pace. Really, suddenly, given us not just tens or hundreds, but thousands of exoplanets, and several hundred of them look to be habitable. So I call these the the twin engines of discovery of the past few decades that make it so we have sort of the molecular basis of biology that we could actually maybe get to these planets mm-hmm. and then also we know the planets themselves that we could actually go towards whereas if you go back 25 years ago, we had no human genome, limited understanding of a lot of the biology, and let alone what would happen in space, and we had zero exoplanets. Or the first one was in 1992, right? But it was barely discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now, I mean, it's really a, a, a sea change in terms of the, the the mental world we live in, and frankly, what we can see when we look in the sky. Mm-hmm. So what that means, though, is uh, there's a range of options to get there. Either you send a generation ship, or multiple people, multiple generations, live and die on the same spacecraft towards the star, or you get a bunch of good robots, freeze a bunch of embryos, send them there, and then once they get there, hopefully it works out. They raise them, mm-hmm. uh, or we get propulsion that's even faster. And it, it kind of—I go through other methods in the book, but you know, I don't assume any gigantic changes in propulsion technology mm-hmm. just for the sake of. Again, the whole book is anchored in science. So mm-hmm. if I said we're going to get antimatter drives or fusion drives, <laughs> you know, maybe we will, and that'd be cool. But I just—we don't have them today. So I built everything on. What do we know is possible today, and went from there basically. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's possible. We have the AI is not that good yet, and the robots are that good. But freezing embryos is routine at this point, and that, that's certainly no problem. Mm-hmm.
0: The second one, uh, do you think engineered humans, you know, hundreds of years in the future will look drastically different, or could look d- drastically different?
1: I think uh, eventually they will. I don't know if it'd be hundreds of years, but it might take thousands of years or even tens of thousands of years. But but we know the answer is yes. If you look at the difference between, say, Neanderthals or other sort of hominids, they all look a slightly different. They don't look dramatically different, but they will invariably look different. And if you put a series of thousands of humans on a different planet with a different gravity, different ecosystems, different selection pressures of evolution. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of, of when, not if we start to look different and sound different and maybe even metabolize differently. And so I think this is something to be expected and actually planned for. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I like to call sort of interplanetary uh, evolutionary lessons where you can sequence a piece of DNA and some interesting microbe you find, for example, on Mars and send the data back to Earth, where we have a lot more resources, and then study it here in depth. And so this this is kind of like point to point biology or point to point evolutionary exploration would inevitably happen for for microbes as well as for the human bodies.
0: So a bit of a, so a moral question here. Um, I assume there's a difference in a, a, a person agreeing to being genetically engineered versus an embryo, you know, so an embryo yep. um, being engineered. Can you talk about that at all?
1: Yeah, there there is um, well, actually a rich body of work on what are our intergenerational responsibilities or intergenerational ethics, basically. So, and which is the simplest thing is, what are you leaving to your children? Is something we often a lot of people think about, or what Native Americans some, some tribes called, a look to the seventh generation, look at look ahead, you know, to what you'll do for the seven generations from now, and plan accordingly. And so there there is a, a rich history culturally, uh, and even in in philosophy about this question. And there, you have to say if I'm, you know, basically designating an embryo towards a specific future, am I giving it the best possible future? Um, what's interesting is we don't have this requirement today. People have a- a- embryos pretty haphazardly, uh, and we just kind of hope that the next generation has it better than the previous one. But I think <laughs> this awareness and this moral duty is it's it's time for people to think about it. Like, but I think it has not unfortunately been really thought of. Some of it's because throughout human history, we haven't lived that long. So when the average life expectancy was 30 or 35, there was barely any time to think, you know, you barely made it into adulthood, frankly. So I think this is only a relatively the past few hundred years we've had, I think, the luxury to begin to uh, really exercise this this moral uh, sort of liberty and clarity.
0: Mm-hmm. And the third sort of maybe sci-fi question I had, um, mixing the genes of animals with humans, is that... Yeah.
1: We're doing it now, uh, so I would say we do it already culturally, scientifically. Um, so, in in the lab, we took some genes from a, a organism called tardigrades, and it has this protein called Dsup, which is a DNA damage suppressor protein. And you put it into human cells, and they can actually resist a bunch more radiation. So, we're taking lessons from them. But I describe it great length in the book. All the other places where we've already taken lessons from other creatures. So, for example, you think you take when you take an antibiotic, mm. you're taking an evolutionary lesson that one bacteria had against a different bacteria. So if you have a really bad infection, you get antibiotics, you know, congratulations, you're taking, in that case, not the genes, but you're taking the product of the genes of a different species. But if you could make just the genes themselves and put them in and have that trait Mm. and it kept you alive, especially on a harsh world, I think, again, you have the moral necessity to do it because the alternative is to say, well, we could have protected you, but instead we sent you to this planet and we just say good luck and hopefully you don't die. Whereas if you had a genetic means of protection that you could deploy safely and efficaciously, then I think you have a duty to do so. You know, again, the, the the benefit has to outweigh the risk. And if it's clear that it does, or as far as we know it does, then you should be obligated to do it.
0: Is there any um, combination or, or, or mixing of, of research in genetic engineering and, and cybernetics? I don't know if that's the best term to use, but. Yeah,
1: uh, there, there is, there. I mean, historically, these are, these are different disciplines where what's happening, say, with a, um, AI programming or Different development of of artificial limbs has been separated, but there are cases where the things like optogenetics—you can actually control, you can see what neurons are activated inside of mice, and even control that uh, with photons. Or starting to blend some of what you'd normally consider physics work and and engineering into biological systems. There's a lot of these bioengineering uh, essentially. Tools and, and techniques are now being deployed, but but they have not been deployed that much in, in astronauts, and I don't know if they will soon. But they, you know, someday potentially, because I think the overarching goal is how do we keep everyone safe? How do we keep them alive and, and keep them more more functional when they're in flight? So we currently do it with pharmacology and physical protection, but we could do it eventually with biological protection or mechanical protection as well.
0: Hmm. I'm speaking with Dr. Christopher Mason, author of The Next 500 Years. You can find more information about his work at masonlab.net. If you like this episode so far, please like it and consider subscribing. All of my links can be heard at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So how did you do the research for this book? Is it based on your experience and and readings or or what else did you put into this? (laughs)
1: it's mostly a lot of the first part is just about my own experience in doing some of these studies. And a lot of it's about what we do in the lab. So how do we modify cells? Uh, But I really also wanted the book to be, what is everything I know as a geneticist that if someone doesn't know any genetics, could they pick up this book and then learn some of the, the language and the tools and even the terminology to say, okay, well, how is it that we can build a cell or modify a species or monitor astronauts when they go to Mars? What would we use? How would we do it? What are the, what are the technologies that enable this? And so I really wanted everyone to see these twin engines of Discover and the genetic technologies and also the exoplanets. And then by the end of the book, there's a list. It's kind of a, a wish list of here's the planets that we think we could get to and survive because the gravity would be about right and they might even have liquid water. We just have to get there. And so it, it was really fun to write because it, it, it's all possible, whereas a couple of decades ago, it'd be total science fiction. Mm-hmm.
0: Did you um, stumble across anything that, that surprised you as you were writing this?
1: I, the thing that actually surprised me the most was I got a, when I finished the last chapter, it's kind of about how the universe might end and what's projected to be either you know the great freeze or the big rip or different ways that the entropy might change at the end of the universe mm-hmm. and in looking ahead the the sun is expected to last about four point seven billion years before it actually engorges into a red giant and and eats up you know Venus and Earth and Mercury and probably Mars. And you know, char everything to a cinder. That's another reason that eventually we do have to go somewhere because we just can't stay here forever. If you, you know, I think all moral questions are crystal clear in the lens of five billion years. You say, okay, yeah. well, if we're still here and we, if we're still arguing about it, it's, it's moot. You're just going to be burned to a crisp. So yeah. uh, you have to, you know, argue somewhere else to to survive and have your argument keep going. But what what I got. It's a bit sad about and surprised is that I'd always thought we had, like, oh, about 5 billion years. That's a long time, right? We've got plenty of time, and hopefully we don't get hit by an asteroid, but we should have some time. But actually, the luminescent projection for the sun is that in about a billion years, it'll get so hot, it'll start to boil the oceans. And so I actually really went from imagining sort of the human species could survive another 5 billion years to really it's only probably going to be about a billion before the Earth is pretty uninhabitable, and I was sad because, it, you know, I went downstairs and told my wife, I said, oh, I, thought just, I thought we had more time. And she said, well, it's still a billion years, it's still a long time. And I said, well, but it was a lot less than I thought we had. So I was surprised to know that by current solar projections, uh, we had less time than I thought.
0: Hmm. What, so looking at, at a 500-year time frame, um, it, it sounds like a long time, but then I guess if you really focus on it, it seems like it's not a lot of time to get certain things done. Um did you did you have any insights as far as looking at things in this time frame? Did you have sort of any insights about how how we do scientific research, how we approach approach it in any way?
1: I think we I mean one of the things that's really different today versus previous, I think, you know, epochs of science mm-hmm. is that everything is moves a lot faster and people share a lot more, which I think is is unique. And then also the knowledge is is continuing to accrete whereas before when thomas edison died or or you know um, when, when isaac newton died a lot of the knowledge died with them so whatever they could write and propagate was still around but there was deep insight and understanding that was lost whereas now a lot of it you know is being is being preserved and recorded and i think transmitted much more efficiently and consistently so i think the the pace of exploration and discovery's gotten better I, I think you know we you know, just as a species are now a much better place to actually uh, d- discover things and actually then, and then deploy them and, and even, you know, just y- including going to other planets. So I, I think it really is the, the sharing and the preservation of knowledge is, is better and faster than ever before. And, you know, if you compare it so 500 years, it seems like a long time, but it's actually pretty short. I think what's interesting is if you read, you know, works of Shakespeare or the, the Iliad or the Odyssey, a lot of the same human drives and human traits and jealousy and anger and, and hope and dream and aspiration nothing of it, like nothing but humans has really changed in thousands of years but technologically in a few hundred years you know we've gone from a scant understanding of the universe or cells to uh, completely re-engineering uh, cells that we can send to planets that we didn't know existed you know potentially at all 20 years ago so it's really night and day in that sense but we're still humans i think uh we still have all these same drives that uh sometimes get us into trouble
0: can you go into a little more detail on how you divided up your your different phases going into the future? Um, I, I forget the chapter names. Um,
1: yes, uh, I could even I even uh, have a, I have have a copy right here. I suppose I'll, I'll jump in. So um, I might do this. Uh, so the phases were described really in terms of what happened in the last ten years of what did the explosion of genetic technologies teach us? Mm-hmm. And I called it kind of the the first genetic astronauts. And then what's the landscape today of genomics? Mm-hmm. And then in the next 20 years, I imagine and lay out the way we'll start doing a lot of engineering of genomes, of of DNA and of cells. Mm -hmm. And then phase three is when we start doing these long term trials of of human and genome and cellular engineering, Mm -hmm. because I think we'll need a different kind of view. When we start to fundamentally change DNA, Mm -hmm. you ideally would want a multi-generational clinical trial, basically, you want to make sure... How sure are we that our technology is that good? I don't even think we should start this until 2040 because hmm. the tools and the technologies like CRISPR, and G2Mating, they're amazing, they're fantastic, but they are very new. And we, you know, we need really, I think, another 20 years of trials before I start to do this, where we do it you know, at, at long term and do potentially germline engineering. Even that would have to be really well, right? Where you do it for multiple generations. But did, then once that say, is done and safe... Oh, go ahead.
0: Did you say J- Jeremiah?
1: Oh, sorry, when you're doing germline engineering, meaning we're actually modifying egg and sperm that goes to the next generation, or you're modifying embryos from day one, so that the modifications are not just for you, for your disease, but they're, they are per- perpetuated. They're part of the human, really, genetic landscape. And so to do that, we have to be absolutely sure that we know what we're doing and that the, the benefits outweigh really the risks, and that we can possibly put it back, right? So one good thing about genome editing systems is if something goes really wrong... There are ways to, to to turn things back, right? So that is that is one slight benefit of the. If, as we as we get better and better with these tools, we also have an improved ability to correct mistakes. Uh, if we can't if we can't see them today, but we realize it 20 years from now, uh, in theory we could correct it. Um, okay. So I describe the technology for that in the long-term trials of human and cellular engineering. Okay. Then to, uh, to phase four is just preparing humans for space. And then also, like, how do we, look? what planets are we starting to look at, thinking about the Mars missions and how we start to live on Mars. Mm -hmm. And then once we get to the year 2150, we start uh, doing synthetic biology for new homes. I talk about ways we could potentially survive on harsh worlds that we couldn't do today. So I I really talk about, in Phase 5 and 6, really, the limits of life. Like, what are the extremophiles that can survive you know, in nuclear reactor power plant cooling waters or uh, places that can survive near lava or in the coldest of oceans or in the hottest or the most radiation-rich or, you know, saltiest of places on Earth, Mm -hmm. and use that as basically a genetic tapestry of basically this evolutionary toolbox that we can say, well, how did this creature survive in this strange location on Earth or on Titan? Mm -hmm. Could we then use that to help us survive somewhere else? It's kind of what I described. And then once we've understood all of those genetic components and found more worlds, I described in phase seven by 2250 is that we then start testing these generation ships and start to actually maybe head to land on Titan and maybe get there, which is far away, but possible by then. Mm -hmm. And the goal would be that we start to, you know, settle places that might start to look uh, like earth and our solar system or try and get Mars to be a bit more habitable by then. Mm -hmm. And then by phase nine, by the end of 2,500, As that, we wouldn't have a generation ship that we could launch towards a second star that we could uh, hopefully survive in. And then phase 10 is beyond 2500. It's basically everything that goes from then to the end of the universe. Mm -hmm. And do I think we should keep going? And my answer is yes, because I'm a bit of a humanist.
0: So, as you were describing that, and we kind of touched on this, but um, there's not, I don't see a one size fits all. You know, like we have different kinds of uh, landscapes that people would need to survive in. So it seems like you'd have people designed for certain landscapes, you know, or you're also mentioning, you know, um, geological, uh, yeah. manipulation to make it more earth-like. So, so I don't know if you can talk about those two different ideas.
1: Yeah. I mean, one would be the simplest thing would be for human. It's much easier to just get a human to a spot and say, okay, dig deep under the dirt and survive You know, the radiation will be less there. You can maybe survive there. If we can, you know, have the geology protect us. Great. But in many cases, you know, if you need an atmosphere or you need water or you have to think about even, you know, uh, adding what are called, you know, these, if you actually really want to create like a magnetic field for a planet, that is really hard to do. It's complete, you know, planetary scale engineering. And so that I didn't talk about in the book too much because we have no idea how to do that yet. I think it's really cool. There's a lot of great science fiction written about that. And like Dyson spheres or ways to capture a whole sun at a time would be fabulous. Right. But uh, completely implausible in the near future. But I, I think, What we can do, though, is we can create organisms that can survive in really harsh environments and create little atmospheres for us in small bubbles that can make food for us uh, that can actually enable humans to survive on Mars or other planets. So Mm -hmm. I describe a lot of what we do in small stages, but then there is this idea of uh, of terraforming Mars, but that's beyond 500 years, so that's why I didn't talk about it too much. It would probably take... you know, tens of thousands of years, if not longer, to get it to work. But, mm-hmm. but it, it is not impossible. It is just a question of, of resources and planetary scale management.
0: Mm-hmm. But yet, if we do make people, you know, like I'm thinking in terms of, you know, you don't need as as your bone density doesn't need to be as great in certain environments. But, you know, if you engineered someone to be better positioned in a certain environment, they could almost couldn't come back to Earth. You know.
1: Yeah, and this gets to the point also of, gen- of cellular liberty, and even mm. I described later in the book, I, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with the idea of if we do our engineering of biology correctly, you will expand your genetic liberty, your, your cellular liberty. Like, Where can your uh. cells go in the universe? It's kind of the question, like, are you stuck on one planet, or do you have the ability to go to Mars and, and have your body adapt to the lower gravity and come back to Earth and still survive here okay. if anyone's read or seen The Expanse? You know, a lot of the people who live in the belt can't go back to Earth because their bones will, you know, just hurts too much, basically. So I find that to be a failure, right? If we did this correctly, you could have some degree of engineered plasticity uh, of just surviving. And I, I view that as a form of cellular and then expanded to planetary liberty, the ability to just go where you want to go uh, in the universe. And so this is um, something that if you take that away from someone you've decreased their options, which I think it would be, you know, immoral if you can avoid it. If if it's not avoidable, if we don't have the technology, we don't know how to do it, but we still have people on Mars and earth and they can't go back and forth that readily, then I'll take that, you know, but I would, Mm -hmm. I would much prefer uh, an an ability and an engineering and a a really, uh, you know, the tactile ability to change cells as needed so they can survive on more than one planet would be a a great success story. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah because you know it's you know people talk about oh the, the bad things that happen to your body in space but it seems that in a in a sense the body is trying to be a, as efficient as possible in this environment you know it's not necessarily mm-hmm. bad there you know it's one it's just it's
1: adapting it's trying to but you know we've had these you know, billions of years of life on earth and there's not a lot of time to have evolved to get used to, you know, reduced gravity or floating in space. So, Mm uh, the body's confused, you know, but, but if, if there were many, many generations, I'm sure we'd see traits that start to emerge that are better for surviving there. So, Mm -hmm. uh, or better yet, we could help nurture them and pick the best ones first, again, as a way to keep everybody safe and, and really happy and functional.
0: And, um, there's I don't know what the name of this concept is, but I, I I've read you know books about extreme environments. People like to go to the extreme environments on the Earth, and it described how really we're designed to to live in such a narrow sort of limited temperature,
1: area. pressure, yeah, yeah, salinity, what water, yeah, it, we're not the we're not as hardy as like a dinococcus species of different bacteria that can survive in really rough environments or tardigrades for that matter. That gene we took from the tardigrade, it can survive in the vacuum of space, come back and then be rehydrated and then walks around, you know, so we can't quite do that. Mm. Uh, but you know, it'd be fabulous if we could. Mm -hmm. And so I think taking lessons from these other organisms to expand our range would, would probably be needed for some of these faraway worlds.
0: What do you see as the most, um, in the short term, what's the most, um, exciting discovery you see on the the near horizon as far as all this yeah,
1: I actually am really excited that we will there's a couple of things within 10 years we'll be getting samples back from Mars it looks like or maybe by 2032 mm-hmm. so we'll start to get a sense of was there ever life on Mars we'll have the physical samples to look at and do sequencing here mm-hmm. uh, and characterization and biochemical analysis of the samples but even more exciting I think is we'll probably be on Mars and I could actually even grab more samples there. And sequence them there, characters in there and send the data back here. And if we have any evidence that it's life there, we could actually synthesize the life that's found on a different planet and then study it or learn from it here. This, this idea of interplanetary evolutionary lessons that we get to learn is not that far away. And so it, it really, and in the book, it's described it being at a great scale in a 200 years, but it will be within our grasp probably within 10 or 15 years. It depends on who gets there first, but I think it's very exciting. It'll be. You know, but it'll be it'll be slow. A lot of people point to the fact that well, we got to the moon in 69 and we haven't really done much since. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that is it's true in the sense that we haven't been back as much. But there's a lot that's happened technologically and biologically uh, and really just, you know, for what humanity's done. We're in a much better position to go back to the moon and Mars now than we could have done, say, in 73 or 74.
0: So this is uh, pure speculation. And this is definitely a sci sci-fi question, I think. Um, sure. Do you think. You know, alien life. I'm not going to say if or if it exists. I'm pre, I feel confident that it's out there. Um, do you think? Do you think life pretty much develop is pretty similar as far as the makeup, how it's made up? You know, the molecular and, and maybe genetically. Do you think, or might it be radically different?
1: Great question. So this is, and of course, the question of, is: there life out there? Uh, actually, a lot of people in the astrobiology field usually say a version of yes. They're like, well probably some bacteria somewhere out there. Is there intelligent life? Is it complicated? Did it survive its own self-annihilation? All those questions. But, you know, the Drake equation is very famous for this. Sarah Seeger published an updated equation called the Seeger equation, which is looking at biosignatures in the atmospheres, you know, this is an, an age-old question. It really is old as humans looking up at the stars, right? So there, there very likely could be some ability for a life of a very minute minute form to exist somewhere. And if it did, though, I think, you know, if I had to guess, and of course this is a guess, I think it would be, you know, related in the sense that it has to propagate information faithfully to the next cell or the next generation, but I think the mechanisms for it could be totally different. Instead so of four bases of the genetic code, it could be six, it could be eight, mm. uh, it could be other variations because we've done this in the lab. We know that it's possible to have tweaks of the DNA or tweaks of information-carrying molecules. And it, this is true across the whole central dogma of biology. So th- think, for example, you know, DNA, RNA, protein. We often think of it as the, kind of the central anchors of where biology goes and lives and acts. Mm. DNA transposons can copy themselves, and, and, and that happens. There's ribozymes that can actually make copies of themselves and even prions. You think about like mad cow disease, it's like a protein transmutating and and transforming another protein to be a copy. So Hmm. in our, in our own planet, we've already seen things beyond DNA that can actually copy information and transmit it. And so are there other life forms that do it differently? I I would be surprised if they didn't actually, because there's so many ways information Hmm. can be propagated with molecules that we've seen on earth.
0: I can imagine if, um, you know, let's say bacteria is found on Mars, or or just wherever. You know, I can just imagine that the concerns with any sort of synthesis or copying, or or even genetic engineering. You know, even the idea of combining it with with a worm. You know, something as simple as right. that. I could imagine that the the protests and the concerns just being extreme.
1: Yep. Yeah, I think people would be, well, only only if it is, if, if there's a way to say this is the only way to keep you alive on this planet, either die or you get this modification. I think then people say, well, okay, I guess you should get it. But but people really have the sense of, of a purity of nature um, and the sanctity of it. I actually argue that this is one of those rare examples where you may have to engineer biology to save biology mm-hmm. because it doesn't, it's not built to live anywhere else. And so again, the alternatives are you send a bunch of people there and say, good luck. And hopefully you just eventually evolve to survive there. Or if we do have some of these modern tools that keep people safe and actually enable them to live, uh, you know, without disease, we should deploy them, I think. And so this is, um, and arguably it's our ethical duty and medical duty. If we know we can do it fa- you know, safely.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there person yourself? Do you see any anything in genetic engineering or genetic studies that maybe is a line that we shouldn't cross? And and we've already talked about eugenics. I'm not talking about you know that, but is there anything within science that maybe people don't know about that's that's dangerous?
1: Well, yeah, one of the big things that uh, you know, there's a few things. There's there's two things, and they're kind of related concepts that are really big questions that we you know kind of lines that we haven't really crossed not too much but are starting to so one of them is there's gene drives or these ways you can have self-propagating genetic elements into ecosystems so imagine for example if mosquitoes if you wanted to kill off all the mosquitoes you can create this genetic element that goes to all the mosquitoes and keeps getting passed on and eventually you can make them all infertile uh, or, or essentially wipe them out so this concept of species elimination uh which, which technically probably wouldn't necessarily work uh, all the time but is an interesting idea that's being tried now This idea of ecosystem engineering uh, and even of reviving extinct animals like the woolly mammoth or the you know a passenger pigeon these are projects that are ongoing we're actually helping with this project it's called revive and restore where you actually their goal their conservation biologists they say well can we use the tools of biology to save species for example the black-footed ferret was just recently cloned and to add more members of the species because there's not that many left right so this is one of these cases where can we save a species that's close to extinction and can we bring something back that's already experienced extinction like the woolly mammoth which is being tried right now and this these are really uncharted waters we're basically saying we want to undo a murder at a species-wide level that we caused and and so you say well you know, If in life you murdered someone on accident, would, wouldn't you love the ability to undo what you did that you thought was wrong? Uh, of course, the answer is kind of like, well, sure, I'd love to undo murder that was unjust. But uh, what happens when you bring a woolly mammoth back that's been extinct for thousands and thousands of years, it might not you know, fit as well in the new ecosystem. So we are at this unprecedented era where we are engineering species and ecosystems and de-extinctifying species, which I talk a bit about in the book. And we have to do it carefully. So I think it's it's something that's just beginning to be crossed. But uh, here too is arguably our moral duty, since we caused the problem in the first place.
0: Do you think schools, um, even as as young as elementary school, do we need technology ethics classes? Do you think enough is being done to teach people about these things?
1: Yeah, I think the the ethics classes and even just understanding how different you know religions. Uh, you know, even view some of these questions. So for example, if you're living on Mars, which way do you pray to Mecca? It might be above you instead of somewhere on the planet near you, right? So, uh, not not just thinking about the ethics of it, but even the religious interpretation, the the philosophical interpretation. These are all questions that are they're very human, right? That you have to think that this is that there's a, a yearning inside humans that is as old as humans, as far as we know, is painting on caves. So. We have to address that and kind of, I think, respect that sort of mystery in, you know, ethical and, and deep moral questioning because it's really central to, I think, humanity.
0: Mm-hmm. And I forget, I'm, I think there's a name for this concept or this idea that uh, we just haven't had enough. To, our technology is, is developing so quickly we haven't had time to develop the, the morals to, to handle it, you know. <laughs> Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And there's also not that many ethical systems that have been put together. So there's either the greatest good for the greatest number, or utilitarianism, or there's Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. Like, well, if you did something and everyone did that, what would that do to the world? Like, and kind of these two big themes. The one I propose in the book is a, is a newer version that is what's just called deontogenic, or what is our genetic duty. And I think we have to serve as sort of the stewards and guardians of of life itself, because as far as we know, no one else knows about extinction. So actually. Propose this as a new framework to try and, you know, go in parallel with the new technology is that what is our, what, what are we preserving in terms of life? It makes us really the guardians of life itself because, uh, we're the only ones that can stop extinction. We can also cause extinction, but we're the only ones that can stop it. And I think that gives us a new duty that's been heretofore really underappreciated. Mm -hmm.
0: So the question I want to ask is what most excites you about the future. We've talked about a bunch of things that obviously do excite you, um, is there anything we haven't mentioned or, or any concepts or ideas or anything that, that you're looking forward to?
1: There's lots of, I mean, you know, if I could, I'd love to live 500 years, but I plan to be dead for the majority of this plan. But I, I think <laughs> the thing I, the thing I would look most forward to is, is the, uh, you know, there is some interesting work on hibernation. That's one of the other options is maybe we don't have to, uh, send embryos or send people we could hibernate underway. There's some really cool work on looking at high hibernation changes, your risk of diabetes, or just surviving, you know, in that state. I described some of that in the book. So that's some really interesting recent research there. And I think just the ability, the number of satellites out collecting uh, images of exoplanets or transiting uh, maps of them is extraordinary. We're finding new exoplanets almost every day. And so it's really, I, I just think it was a bit like being a geneticist in the early 2000s. We just We just kept discovering genes, thousands of genes all the time, every day. As a grad student, I discovered thousands of new genes, like just as one guy. And so it's kind of like that, I think, for exoplanets today. So I think, and that process has continued for genetics as well as for astronomy. So, uh, I actually think just doing what we're already doing is pretty fabulous. And I, I hope to see more of it, but it's kind of like building up a lot of Legos that you know you can build. And the really fun starts, well, okay, now we have all these genetic maps. How do we, you know, actually take, you know, this dictionary of functions and start to make, you know, basically novels of the biology that we want to see.
0: I imagine computing power, as it, as it yep. gets better and better, is just going to make all this move faster.
1: Yeah, it's, a big, it's going to be a huge part of it. It already is, actually. Yeah, we did one of the big papers we published a few weeks ago. The whole section of the paper was just about all the large-scale compute we did on these really big, uh, high-performance computing, supercomputing nodes, basically, a place called XSEED. Mm-hmm. So uh, it is a key part of science already, and it's just going to continue to be.
0: What are some of the, the important nodes, uh, research nodes, for, for this work? For the computing work? No, for, for your – well, combined with the genetic uh, work. Or this actually, I'll just say the genetic work. Where, where are the nodes, the main nodes of research? Uh, hmm.
1: Well, um, what's really exciting, the, the big nodes, you know, the obvious places are the academic medical centers, NASA. You know, there's places, though, that have expanded that are not just government or academic industry sites have really ramped up SpaceX and Blue Origin uh, but also they're they're partnering with Microsoft with you know hedge funds people are supporting the research from all directions so i think there is a really you know exciting you know academic government and industry collaboration that's happening at really an unprecedented scale. And so I think we, we've seen more and more of this with NASA being, you know, collaborative with lots of industry groups. Uh, one big example, something called Trish, which is a big institute at Baylor college, mm-hmm. called the translational research Institute of space health. And it's just all about uh, giving out grants to companies, to academics, to groups to like get technologies into space and get things that are working uh, in flight. So we could think about the astronauts and think about their health.
0: Is there any country um, that's doing a lot in genetics that people might not might be surprised to hear like you know mm-hmm. hey they're working on stuff too
1: yeah actually estonia for example estonia is doing almost every citizen is going to get their genome sequenced and, and linked to their mm-hmm. medical records so mm-hmm. who would have thought estonia but estonia is doing it but so is the uk so is the united states uh france so australia a lot of places are doing these large initiatives where you l- marry the molecular data essentially your dna your genes your proteins with the clinical data, what did, what did you die from? What are you at risk from? What do your clinical records look like? And so mm-hmm. this gives us a, the greatest capacity to learn about not just precision medicine, but more predictive medicine. What, what are you going towards? And could we prevent you from getting sick before you get there? And so it's a really exciting time in medicine too.
0: It seems like uh, privacy issues with medicine, at, at some point, people are just going to have to abandon it because it's, it's almost mm-hmm. better for your health to have your info shared you know, it's so it's just,
1: I mean, privacy is going to be increasingly hard to keep. Uh, actually, we just published a paper on this uh, two months ago called "The Cross Kingdom Impacts of on Privacy." Is that it's not just your DNA that it reveals a lot about you. It's your microbial DNA, your microbes do, your RNA, your proteins, your social media profile. You know, essentially, when you leave a cup of coffee behind and you walk out of a cafe, there is a plethora of information left <laughs> that your lips put on that cup. And so, we just described in this paper everything you could learn about. It. Someone obviously, like their DNA, their, sort of their ancestry, your risk of diseases, uh, where you've likely been earlier that day, or like there's RNA that's present. You can see whether you might have diabetes uh, based on some of your microbiome profiles. So you, you learn about all these different traits just because you left a cup behind. And so, I think it's going to get harder, but it's still important to keep as much of it as we can. I'd say, mm-hmm.
0: and you mentioned immortality, how you know, or joking about not being immortal, but you know, it seems that there is research to just have. That can lead to people living for hundreds of years or more.
1: Uh, th- so there, there's, there's definitely examples uh, in, in biology um, where, like, plants or certain uh, even, you know, kind of uh, sea creatures, like some kinds of jellyfish, can live for thousands of years. Uh, certain trees are known to live for almost six, seven thousand years, mm-hmm. but humans have never made it past 122, right? So we, we, there's one that might, one person that might have made it to 126, but. You think about all everything that's developed, everyone's living on average longer, but no one's living the maximum longer. So I think I really wish all – I even have a, a company called Longevity that focuses a bit on longevity, and I really want to include, you know, make sure the health span gets longer as possible, but the lifespan of humans is, has been really stubborn. And so I think we're going to have to – there too, if we really want to change it, we may have to think about deploying some of these really – cell by cell engineering tools to to fix what's been broken so I, I don't know if we'll have to but it's certainly something we have to consider if uh, longevity beyond 116 122 is for the confirmed longest uh, human life as far as I know if we want to go past that we might have to get a little bit uh, creative
0: yeah so um, where can people find you on the web to follow your thoughts uh, so
1: I'm I'm on Twitter it's at Mason Lab. It's it says at Mason underscore lab and also on Instagram at Christopher.e.mason. Also our lab website is Masonlab.net. And also there's a lot of pages at the Cornell websites and other research we've published on the NASA websites. Of course you can go to get the book wherever books are sold. I just saw it at Barnes and Noble yesterday, so you can walk in there and grab it. Um, it's also online and also I'm happy to email with anyone and uh, stay in touch.
0: Are you gonna try to go into space when when more of us get the chance? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I would love to go to space. I'd have to do a lot of experiments up there. Yeah. My wife and daughter would like me to wait a little bit just in case something goes awry. But I'm planning to go as soon as it's moderately affordable. I'll, I'll head right up for sure.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, well, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words?
1: No, just that I think this is really an extraordinary time. And if you want a roadmap of a lot of fun ahead for the next 500 years, um, grab the next 500 years
0: and head to the beach. Yeah, yeah. And, and the ratings are great on Amazon, so obviously a yep. lot of people are enjoying it. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. There was, I did get one person who gave it three stars, and he just said, Mason is far too optimistic. Humans are never going to make it. We're going to kill ourselves. And I was like, well, don't give me a bad review because you're a misanthrope. <laughs> but I did get one three-star review out there that, that did happen. Yes. The yeah. rest were pretty good,
0: though, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh thank you very much for speaking with me. Thanks. Pleasure. In the next episode, I speak with Jeff Schessel about his book on John Glenn and the Mercury mission. Space dock the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Technology and Space. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and this podcast, Technology and Space. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out Warscholar.org and follow me at Warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez Scholar on Instagram, and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions, including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, Sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.